As we turn the corner here and resume our study of Judges, I want to pray for us that the Lord would uh, open up our eyes this morning to see him in the word. So let's pray together. Father, we pause just to thank you for giving us life today. And we thank you for giving us life in Christ even more. And we pray this morning that your spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Lord, thank you for what you've set before us. We pray that you would help us to understand it and by your grace, apply it to our lives. Uh, We come to see Jesus. Lord, help us to see him in a new way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study this morning in Judges chapter 14. Last week, David Williams covered uh, really an interesting birth narrative of Samson. When you think about uh, all the characters in the Bible, not many of them get a birth narrative, but Samson does. And, and David covered that so well. I encourage you to listen to that uh, if you haven't had a chance. This week we'll be talking about Samson in chapter 14, mostly a little bit of 15. And then when we meet again in a few weeks, we'll, we'll cover the Samson and Delilah stuff in Judges 16. As a backdrop, as we get started, I just want to remind you of what you might call the theme verse in Judges, which is the very last verse in Judges. It also happens in chapter 17, very same words. It says in Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that idea of doing what's right in your own eyes comes through very clearly in Samson's life, quickly in our passage. So in a sense, the Israelites were kingless, like the title of our series. They had a true king in Yahweh, but as we know and as we see in these cycles, they repeatedly turn away from him and worship idols. Uh, Yet they haven't asked for an earthly king to be like their neighbors yet. So that is coming. Um, As we look at Samson, I just want you to think that he actually is a reflection. It's like looking at a mirror of what's going on in, in Israel as a nation. You think about this interesting question, does a leader reflect the culture? Or does the culture reflect the leader? And I think the answer is probably yes. You know, the influence flows both directions, probably in varying degrees, depending on the situation. Like the character of our young nation produced a leader like George Washington, and having a leader like George Washington probably produced a number of people who reflected him. And you think about us, you know, do we reflect the drift and the degeneration of our culture? We'd like to think, no, we're different. But when I look at my life, I see ways that my life reflects the idols, and the degeneration around us. I spent some time during my sabbatical reading old books. (laughs) I read, you know, some some books, some works about pastors from two or three hundred years ago. And I was so encouraged by the Lord's work in their lives, but I was also convicted that I'm not where I want to be living in this noisy and crazy (laughs) technology-filled, idol-filled world. So it, it raises a question for us as we think about judges and we think about our time. You know, if, if the leaders reflect the culture and the culture reflects the leaders, how do we break the cycle? You think about, you know, if we've all fallen into a pit, then we can't help each other out of there. There has to be somebody who's not in the pit to come and pull us out. And I think we know who that somebody is, but the real question is, do we want the Lord to pull us out? If you remember in this cycle of judges, the Israelites this time around don't even cry out for deliverance. It's like they've just sort of adopted and adapted to the ways of Philistine culture. They're in the pit and they kind of like it. So think about what about us? If we 
happen to be slaves to the idols of our culture, are we crying out for the Lord to save us? Can we even see it? Or have we perhaps accepted and fallen in love with our chains? So those are some big questions sort of set before us as we turn to Samson. Our passage this morning is from Judges 14. It's the whole chapter, verses 1 through 20. Follow along on your handout, starting in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. And after some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion." His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, <laughs> you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if any of you think the Bible is boring, this passage is certainly a counter-argument. I mean, this is almost too much for even TV. 
Um, and I want to talk about it through three lenses, through the idea of seeing how Samson sees, through the lens of secrets, which you, if you notice, there's kind of a trail of secrets through the passage, and then ultimately strength, because Samson is our strong man, and yet what's really going on here? Seeing, I think, is the most important topic, so we're going to start there and spend the most time there, and then we'll touch a little bit on secrets and strength. So I want to begin by talking about seeing this idea that Samson did what was right in his own eyes. So how does he see the world and what's big in his field of vision? If you look at Judges 14, starting in verse 1, you see the first thing we really hear about him is that he just sees one of the daughters of the Philistines. And Timnah is deep in Israelite territory. So the Philistines have really come to live there, but somehow it's peaceful. You know, the Israelites are living peacefully among the enemy. So Samson sees this nameless woman, which I think is interesting also. You know, his desire for her, uh, he, she doesn't even have a name in the passage. She doesn't know God. We should assume his God. He doesn't pause for a second to think about, is this a good idea? He just sees her. He wants to marry her. It doesn't even appear that he has talked to her yet. So Samson's more interested in marrying Philistines than in being an instrument of delivering Israel from them. So after that amazing chapter 13 and all that we expected, it already seems like this is not going as we thought it would. So he tells his sweet parents, I saw her, now get her for me as my wife. Which in probably any culture would be difficult, but especially in this culture. And to honor your father and, and, and his desire for your life and your spouse. They push back like good parents should. You know, maybe you've been in this situation. Is there not someone else? You know, is there not a woman among our people? You know, not an uncircumcised Philistine that doesn't share our allegiance to Yahweh. She's going to divide your heart and make things really difficult. But Samson's response is what he's already said, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That's how he sees the world. This is right in my eyes. She's, he's attracted to her physically, and that's about it. He's impulsive and unteachable, much like Israel. He won't listen to his parents, like Israel doesn't want to listen to their father in heaven. Samson does what's right in his own eyes, like Israel, and it doesn't end here. If you go to chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, but in 16.1, it says Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Again, see a woman, get a woman. In 16.4, after this, he loved a woman whose name was Delilah, and we'll see how that goes. And then in 1621, ironically, in the end of his story, the Philistines gouge out Samson's eyes. So the man who could only see with his physical eyes eventually loses them. And without spiritual sight, Samson, you could say, is left totally blind. So Samson, I think we could say, doesn't see the Lord at the center of his life. In Judges 14 through 16, if you spend time in those three chapters, the Lord is not the biggest thing in his field of vision. As far as we know, just taking the textual evidence, he doesn't seek the Lord. He doesn't call upon the Lord. Like other people have gone before him, he doesn't build an altar and worship the Lord. He doesn't ask for the Lord's help. He doesn't inquire whether he should go fight. Another leader, David, Going against another Philistine, Goliath, would later say, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. But Samson doesn't say anything like that. You think about Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. 
And you look at the text and it doesn't seem like Samson has any good friends or counselors. He's all alone. He doesn't acknowledge the Lord as a source of his strength. As far as I can tell, Samson is the main character in Samson's story. It's tragic. Judges 13 gives us this great anticipation for the leader who's coming, but this man, called and gifted by the Lord, falls far short of our expectations. I only really see two counterexamples, but they actually end up, I think, reinforcing the point. In Judges 15, 18, this is an amazing story, after killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, Samson, it says, is thirsty. (laughs) I'm a little thirsty after that. And the text says that he calls upon the Lord, but this is what he says. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So this to me actually seems to be more about Samson getting water than really rejoicing in God's great salvation. And then in Judges 16, 28, when Samson is a blind prisoner of the Philistines and he's kind of being made a spectacle, he calls to the Lord. He says, Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Not for the sake of your glory, not for the sake of your name, not to deliver your people, (laughs) for my two eyes. So it's more about getting revenge than serving the Lord's purposes. That's my read. Samson is a sensual man in the truest sense. He's a slave to his senses and his impulses, whether that's his appetite for food or sex or the impulse to fight when things don't go his way. He actually seems more animal than human. Whatever Samson desires in the moment, that seems to be all that he can see. So see the girl, get the girl. See the lion, kill the lion. See the honey, eat the honey. Think of the riddle, tell the riddle. Lose the bet, kill people and pay the debt. He's like a runaway train of pride and sexual desire. It's interesting, they're very different characters, but to think about the connection between Samson and David and Solomon, these big characters in scripture. Samson with all of his strength, David with all of his heart for God, and Solomon with all his wisdom, and all of them had struggles with sexual sin. And I think it's just worth noting that we're all capable of falling into really unimaginable sin. And if we don't believe that, we're probably even more vulnerable. What's interesting to me in this context is the consistency with which we men struggle with sexual sin. It's very clear in the Bible, just thinking about those three characters and other things, and it's clear today. And this is not really the main point, it's more of an aside, but I wanna take the moment just to maybe poke us a little bit and say, do we realize how easy it is for us to go astray sexually? I recently was rereading Mere Christianity and C.S. Lewis has a chapter in there called Sexual Morality, which is really wonderful and challenging. And he has two illustrations that got my attention. And I'll read one and then I'll modernize the other one. He says, the biological purpose of sex is children, just as the biological purpose of eating is to repair the body. Now, if we eat whenever we feel inclined and just as much as we want, it's quite true. Most of us will eat too much, but not terrifically too much. One man may eat enough for two, but he does not eat enough for 10. The appetite goes a little beyond its biological purpose, but not enormously. But if a healthy young man indulged his sexual appetite whenever he felt inclined, and if each act produced a baby, then in 10 years, he might easily populate a small village. 
the appetite is in ludicrous and preposterous excess of its function. And he goes on to say something else, which I'll modernize this way. How strange would it be if millions of people were online at any given moment to watch the unveiling of a dinner plate with a juicy steak on it? You know, wouldn't you say that in that world, the appetite for food had gone out of control? But at any given moment, millions of people are online watching all kinds of pornographic material. And so Lewis actually asked, would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something strange about the state of the sex instinct in us? See, sex is a good gift of God, but when it's all we see, it gets twisted. And I think the problem is it's captivating, but what ends up happening is we become captivated with that. Without a captivating vision of Jesus Christ, we can't see what's right in God's eyes. And so we do what's right in our eyes and our eyes wander. (laughs) We see power, money, possession, sex, prestige, you name it. And like Samson, without prayer, without reflection, we see and we take. And we love the good things of creation more than the creator. And that is what the Bible calls idolatry. And we've talked about that in this series. So the question really is, brothers, how do you see the world? What's the biggest thing in your field of vision? And when you realize that maybe it's not always Jesus or it's rarely Jesus, are you desperate for the Lord to give you new eyes? In these recent months, the Lord has brought me back to the phrase in Hebrews 12, you know, in the run the race passage where it says, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. What do we do when we wake up in the morning, when we go to work, when we encounter difficulty or suffering, when relationships are hard, when we're tempted, when we sin, what do we do? Well, I think the answer to that, you could say a lot of things, but for me, Right now, the answer is looking to Jesus. In all those situations, I wanna be looking to Jesus. We need to gaze upon the one who loved us and died for us, what we'll really zoom in on next week, but really what we think about all the time. We need to behold him in his word and, and commune with him in prayer. We need to be in places like this where we can talk about him with brothers. We, and as we look to him, what the Bible says, as we behold him, he transforms us in his image. And what he does is he changes our taste buds, if you will. So we taste and see that he is good, Psalm 34, 8. And then the pleasures of sin are not so pleasurable because we've tasted something better. So has the Lord opened your eyes to see his glory and his grace? Have you seen something so stunning that it actually stops you in your tracks and causes you to worship him? Or have you seen something so beautiful that it moves you to actually hate the sin that you once loved? I don't think that ever happened for Samson, as far as I can tell. But I pray that it will happen for me and for you, and not just once, but a lot of times. So by God's grace, are we looking to Jesus? In a beautiful way, that's sort of the arc of the whole Christian life. You think about justification, when the Lord opens our eyes and by faith we look to him, he saves us, he pardons us, he justifies us. And sanctification, the walk of the Christian life, as we look to Jesus, he changes us. And then glorification, one day we will look to him, we'll see him face to face, looking to Jesus. It's this daily moment by moment, practice, habit, discipline, approach, whatever you want to call it, 
to live is Christ. And so we look to him and rest in the gospel every single day. That's seeing. Let's talk a little bit about secrets. Samson always seems to have a secret. (laughs) And the thread of secrets in Judges 14 is controlled by, I don't know if you caught it, but two different repeated phrases or words. Each of the cycles begins with somebody went down. Did you see that? They went down, they went down, they went down, they went down. And then throughout these cycles, the verb tell or told occurs repeatedly where it becomes clear it's about people going places and then telling or not telling. This verb occurs 14 times in 20 verses. It's all over the place. So if we walk through the passage, try to make sense of this, the first thing we could say is there's uh, the secret of the lion. If you look in verse 5, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. So one thing I would say is maybe Samson's young and fit, and he's walking ahead of his parents. Somehow they don't see this. So that's just you know, a little detail that's probably helpful. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Note where his strength comes from. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. This is one of the stranger ones to me because why not tell your parents about ripping a lion into pieces? I mean, if you did that, you'd be like telling everyone you knew, right? This is a preview of what the Lord can do through Samson. It should have led him probably to gratitude, perhaps greater dependence upon the Lord in the future when bigger things happen, bigger challenges are coming. But it doesn't seem to work that way. So you think about in our lives, you know, how do we respond to the Lord's little deliverances? When he does something in our lives, do we respond with gratitude, uh, with a a sense of, man, I want to depend on the Lord even more? Or do we, perhaps like Samson, perhaps take credit for it ourselves? That's the first secret that I want to focus on. The next one we could call the secret of the honey, if you look at verse 7. So he goes down, he talks with the woman. Again, she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her. And now he turns aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. So he scrapes it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So again, the went down, the not telling. This is interesting because there seems to be a connection to, you know, what Eve does in Genesis that Samson sees and he takes and he eats and then he gives it to those close to him to to eat as well. And what's amazing here is the Nazarite is eating honey from a dead animal. (laughs) This is unclean, you know, at its finest. And he doesn't seem to have any pause about that. Which probably explains why he didn't want to tell his parents about this one. Not going to tell you where the honey came from because that would be, you know, horrifying to them. But it also shows that maybe as simple as Samson seems to be, he does perhaps have a sense of right and wrong. I'm going to keep this a secret. The next one we could call the secret of the riddle, starting in verse 10. His father went down to the woman. Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. So what we have here is basically the wedding week, you know, that they've put together. Uh, He finds himself in the middle of probably a week-long Philistine wedding feast. Interesting place to be for a Nazarite, supposed to abstain from alcohol, but perhaps he wasn't drinking. But, I mean, you ask yourself, does Samson seem like the kind of guy who would just sort of sit it out? The Philistines, I guess since he's alone, give him what seems to be like 30 groomsmen. And Samson decides to give them a riddle. Thanks for serving with me. Here's a riddle. 
And in our terms, you know, uh, what's at stake is like 30 undergarments and 30 great suits, you know? And there was evidence that there was great interest in riddles in the ancient Near East, so perhaps Samson's all in on that culture. He's going to play the riddle game too. But this is messy because Satan, uh, Satan, Samson basically cheats by giving them an impossible riddle. (laughs) And then they, of course, cheat by saying, you know, we're going to your bride and we're going to pester her, threaten her with violence if she doesn't tell us what the answer is. Samson clearly thinks he's going to win because he doesn't have that much clothes in his closet. And then the Philistines clearly want to win because they don't want to go home naked. So in the end, Samson gives in to his wife after the days of crying and heckling. The wife tells the Philistines, the Philistines solve the riddle. Samson runs off in a fury after calling his wife a cow, which application, don't do that. But I mean, on a serious note, in the end, Samson loses his wife. He loses his wife for this game. You know, the wife that was right in his eyes that he wanted so much, he loses her in a moment because of the secret and the way this played out, because his running off to settle the bet or pay the debt brings shame upon her family. You can read that about that in the very first verse of chapter 15. So her father thinks Samson hates her and he's out of here. So he gives her away to whoever was lucky or unlucky enough to be the best man. So in that moment, Samson loses what he wanted because of the secret. His tendency to keep secrets and ultimately give them up to women in his life leads to great pain. We'll see something similar with Delilah in a more important situation. So it's worth asking, why do we keep secrets? I'm not sure I have an answer that fits every situation, but you think about the theme of judges doing what's right in our own eyes. And if we live like we don't have a king, if we make ourselves king, there's a lot of pressure on us to maintain what's probably an illusion that all is well in the kingdom. So relational and financial, moral mistakes and sins must be kept in the dark. Like Samson, we don't want to tell Sometimes it's because we know we've done something wrong. Other times, perhaps it's more like a game, like Samson with the riddle. Maybe this is a way we can play God. You know, I know everything. They don't know as much. But there's an interesting punchline in Judges 14. Samson always seems to have a secret, but there's something deeper and stronger going on. And nobody sees it. We get to see it because we're the readers. And that's one of the cool things about the chapters. There's all these things going on, but we know. We're in on the secret. And this secret is the Lord's secret. And it brackets and it overwhelms Samson's secrets. The Lord's secret is about his purposes and his power and ultimately how those things are working together for the redemption of his people. So if you call it the secret of the Lord's purpose and power, look at verse one. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. We've talked about that. But look at verse four. His father and mother, after all their frustration, They did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, not Samson, he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. The Lord was working through this strange situation where Samson wanted a foreign woman. If you fast forward to verse 19, after the riddle doesn't go Samson's way, it actually says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he goes off to Ashkelon, kills 30 men, takes their stuff, pays the debt, and then goes back to his parents. It's a very weird story. 
But this is what Yahweh had promised in Judges 13, that Samson would begin to save Israel from the Philistines. This is an initial blow against the enemies of Israel. It seems small. More is coming. But the Lord's secret man, plan is to use this broken man to bring deliverance. Henry Nouwen once wrote this. He said, whereas the way of the world is to insist on publicity, celebrity, popularity, and getting maximum exposure, God prefers to work in secret. Think about all of God's secret works in the Bible. Calling Noah to build an ark when there was no sign of rain. Calling this old man Abraham to be a father of many nations. Somehow getting baby Moses into Pharaoh's house. <laughs> Training young David in the shepherding fields. Calling a teenage girl to be the mother of the Son of God using a cross to accomplish the salvation of his people, how often does the Lord do what we would actually expect? <laughs> the Lord works out his sovereign purposes in the midst of our mess and often in spite of us. This should be a source of great encouragement. In his judge's commentary, Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says, here could have been real comfort for Samson's parents had they known they didn't realize the situation was from the Lord. They couldn't see that the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. This does not mean they were wrong to object to Samson's desires and action. Nor does it mean that Samson's desires were virtuous or that his bullheadedness was right. Listen to this. It means that neither Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness is going to prevent the Lord from accomplishing his design. The Lord can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his servants as the camouflage for bringing his secret will to pass. <laughs> so if you're a Christian parent, it's just one example, and you've watched a child go astray, there is hope in Judges 14.4, but his father and his mother did not realize it was from the Lord. What might the Lord be doing? Is he able to work things together for good? Can I trust him? Can I find comfort in the secret of his power and his purpose? There's a word of warning here, and that is <laughs> when we see the Lord working through someone like Samson, we may think, okay, so it doesn't matter how I live because God's going to do his thing. And that makes me think of Romans 6 where Paul asks, you know, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace will increase? And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the fact that God can and does work through broken instruments doesn't mean that we should go try to be as broken as we can be. If we're looking to Christ, we want to be like him. We want to be holy because we know that the greatest joy and the greatest life is found in living close to him. Think of Psalm 73. As for me, it's good to be near God. Robert Murray McShane's 19th century Scottish pastor, I spent some time with the last few months. He only lived to 29. He wrote these words. He said, how diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. 
Now, brothers, whether you're a minister or not, don't you want to be an awful weapon in the hand of God? Look to Jesus. Let him transform you into an instrument for his purposes. So finally, I want to close with a word about strength, and this will be short. Samson is the Bible's strong man, but his strength turns out to really look like weakness. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson in 14.6 and 14.19. Samson's strength comes from the spirit, but in New Testament terms, Samson doesn't keep in step with the spirit. He grieves the spirit. This is one of the Bible's paradoxical lessons. When we refuse to submit to God, our strengths actually become weaknesses. They become snares for us. But when we submit to God, our weaknesses become strengths. <laughs> they become the stage for God to demonstrate his power in our weakness. And of course, he gets the glory because how could you take credit when you're weak? As men, we like to focus on our strengths and ignore or hide our weaknesses. But we need to realize that our greatest strength could become a weakness. And our pride in our strengths is often the prelude to the fall. So there's another way, but it feels really foreign to us. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, this is verse 9 and 10. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't think Samson realized that. Do we want to be like Samson and fall hard <laughs> in our strengths? Or do we want to learn that secret that Paul learned and find Christ in our weaknesses? As we close, I just want to return our gaze to Jesus Christ because where Samson <laughs> failed, Jesus aced the test. And so we could say Jesus is the true and greater or better Samson. His eyes, Jesus' eyes didn't wander to women and other things. His eyes were always on his father. And he said he would only do what he saw the father doing. And he didn't keep secrets and lash out in violence when things didn't go his way. Jesus actually accomplished the secret plan of God by allowing violence to be done to him. And he didn't try to be strong and fail. Jesus actually was strong. But amazingly, he won the victory through the weakness of the cross. So he's the king of kings, but he's a king like no one we've seen before. And he's able to save us to the uttermost, to be that deliverer that we were hoping for when we got Judges 13, that Samson was coming. So when it comes to seeing, the Lord is inviting us to take our eyes off everything else and look to Jesus. And when it comes to secrets, the Lord is inviting us to come out of the dark with our secrets, come into the light and realize that the greatest secret is actually what Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when it comes to strength, I think what the Lord wants us to see is don't focus so much on your strengths. Look to his grace and realize that he actually wants to be strong in your weaknesses. There's a lot to talk about, so let me pray and I'll encourage you guys to jump into your groups. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and, and speaks to us in this moment. I pray that you would bless these conversations, Lord, that you would shine light, that you would give us courage to be honest, and that you would meet us there. Lord, that you would help us to see Jesus and figure out how by your grace we might take this and apply it to our lives. Change us, Lord. We, we want to be different. 
Uh, we don't want to be slaves to our culture or to our sin. Thank you for a deliverer like Jesus. We pray that you would give us grace to trust him today. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, brothers. Have a great morning.